Hey everyone, it's a great weekend. We just celebrated Canada Day, the anniversary of the founding of our country, and of course, today is the 4th of July, so a very happy Independence Day to any American watchers, but especially to those members of our Elam family who hail from the land of the South. It's also Communion Sunday, so please find yourself a cracker and a piece of bread or whatever you'd like, and also something to drink. I've got some pink Gatorade here so that we can take together. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. This weekend especially, we remember our country. We thank you for the safety that we experience here, God. We thank you for the stability. We thank you for the ways that our government is here to protect us, and also for our neighbors to the south, Lord. We pray for all of these governments, that you would give their leaders wisdom, that you would be with them in all of these times, Lord. Your word says to pray for those in power, and we do that, Heavenly Father. We pray that you would be with us today as we as we gather around your word. We pray that you would open our hearts, that we could see you, that we could meet you, that we could leave this place different for having met you. In your name we pray. Amen. We are starting a new series today. It's going to last us through the summer on the fruit of the Spirit. That phrase comes from Galatians 5, verses 22 to 23, a very well-known passage. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. This summer we'll be going through that list one by one, talking about what it means to have the Spirit in our lives, what manifesting those fruit look like. But today, we're going to start with something a little different. Today, we're going to look at the big picture. Not about how the Spirit transforms us in small ways and in single traits, but how God can take a whole life and transform it. Now, I think this is a pretty big deal. I don't know about you, but to me, the transformation of my life as I pursue G Jesus is just about the main thing. I mean, the real main thing is that Jesus has saved me from eternal damnation. But that's kind of a one and done, you know? Like, now that that's accomplished, now I want to be conformed to the image of the Son, as Romans 8.29 talks about. It's why we do almost everything that we do. We come to, or watch church, we praise God, we read our Bibles, we engage in community with other believers, because we love God, but also because as we do all of these things, the maker of all is shaping us, smoothing out our edges, and sometimes carving out whole pieces so that we can be more like Jesus. And this is absolutely one of the major themes of the Bible. Jesus' call to the disciples, follow me, is not a call to agree with something. To give mental assent to some proposition. It is a call for life change, to leave the old ways behind and to step into something new. To reference the series we just finished, it is a new call to leave behind the slavery of metaphorical Egypt and to enter into the freedom of metaphorical Canaan. And this is the promise all throughout the Old Testament. As in Ezekiel 36, 26, where it says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That's a call and a promise of transformation. And of course, this is all through the New Testament. We've already talked about Jesus' call of follow me, but the promise becomes more specific in the New Testament because now we can see the work of Christ in the process. Like, for example, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, where Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. If you asked me which book of the Bible to read to help you to be more like Jesus, 
I might be at a loss for words. Because the answer really is almost any of them. It really is all the way through. So as we spend the summer looking at the fruit of the Spirit, taking the time to look at them one by one, let's remember the big picture. So today, for our example, we're going to look at one of my favorite people in the Bible, the Apostle Paul. Paul is a hugely important character in the Bible. We have a whole category of books in the Bible which we refer to as Paul's letters, or the Pauline epistles. They're conveniently grouped together, too, and arranged basically by size. Start in Romans and go all the way to Philemon. Those are all Paul. In fact, we used to think that Hebrews was Paul, too, and some, some Bibles might class it as one of Paul's letters. But the truth is, we just don't know who wrote Hebrews. If you want to include it, go nuts. doesn't bother me. Hebrews is a great book full of godly wisdom and revelation, and whether it was written by Paul or Barnabas or Clement of Rome or Priscilla, I'm not terribly concerned. Excluding Hebrews, though, Paul is still responsible for almost a third of the New Testament. But Paul's influence doesn't stop there. One of his traveling companions was a physician named Luke, who took it upon himself to write an orderly account of all the things that had been fulfilled. We know his writing as two parts, the Gospel according to Luke and the Acts of the Apostles, often just called the Book of Acts. So Paul would be responsible for a whole lot of that material, right? And between Luke's writing and Paul's writing, that's over half of the New Testament. But Paul was not always so. He's not mentioned in any of the Gospel accounts, and he doesn't appear until the end of Acts chapter 7. Paul is introduced as the great persecutor of the church. Today we might use a word like inquisitor to describe his role. Our introduction to Paul comes with the death of Stephen, where we are told, The witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Chapter 8, verse 1 starts with, And Saul approved of their killing him. That's Stephen. I should make a note here, just in case anyone isn't aware, Saul and Paul are the same person. Many preachers seem to make a point about God changing Saul's name to Paul, but that doesn't actually appear in the text. What seems more likely is that Paul simply used a different name depending on the cultural context. For example, I knew a man named Blake who went on a missions trip to Mexico, and they could not say his name. Hear him tell the story, it sounds like his name would come out blech, blech. He didn't like that. So while he was in Mexico, he went by Tomas, Thomas, because they could say that. And it seems most likely that that's what was going on with Saul and Paul, that Saul was his name in Jewish contexts, and Paul was his name in Greco-Roman contexts. Anyway, chap Acts chapter 8, verse 3 tells us, But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. So this is our introduction to Paul. This is, this is who this character is. But Paul's life is turned upside down when one day, while traveling on his inquisitorial business, going to a city called Damascus, a bright light flashed all around him and he fell to the ground and encountered the risen and glorified Christ. That story is in Acts chapter 9, where you can read it for yourself. What's amazing to me about this encounter is that Paul actually changes his life. 
Now, your initial reaction is probably something along the lines of, well, of course he changed his life. He saw Jesus. How could he not? But people aren't like that. We like to think that we're hyper-rational, that we change our views based on facts, but the vast majority of people aren't like that. We tend to have what we believe, and then we look for the facts or the interpretation of the facts that matches what we already think. You can probably think of examples where this has come up in probably your own life over the course of the last year. Not taking any sides in any issues, but you can probably see what I mean. It is a constant point of agony for thinking people to be combing over your thought process and weeding out that emotional bias, but it's necessary for truth. And Paul does it. Paul sees Jesus, he obeys, and he starts preaching Christ instead of attacking the church. That's amazing to me that Paul made that transformation, that Paul didn't dwell on the things that he thought he knew or try to find a different way to understand. He just lived the, lived, he followed where the facts led him. But this is not to say that Paul became perfect overnight. And I think it's important to emphasize that because we are not perfect. I'm not perfect. We pray every week for an encounter with God to leave his presence transformed. And, and though we may see progress, though we may be transformed, we still sin and we still fall into many of the same patterns. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7 and verse 15. He says, I do not understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And a few verses later, he says, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. I should also point out that Romans is not the first letter Paul wrote. This is not Paul who had just become a Christian struggling with his skin, right? Paul isn't still wet behind the ears from the waters of baptism. Scholars believe that Paul had already written both letters to the Thessalonians, both letters to the Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, and Philemon by the time he wrote Romans. Paul had been a Christian for 20 years already, 20 years. And he says, I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. So take heart. You are not alone. If Paul struggled like this after a life so devoted to Christ and after having God work through him so mightily, don't be discouraged that you too have a battle with sin. Don't give up, but don't be discouraged that the battle is still there. Just because we struggle with sin does not mean that there is not much to celebrate. Paul, despite his struggles, still sees the transformation in his life. He summarizes this transformation neatly in Galatians 1.23. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And verse 24 describes the result. And they praised God because of me. Isn't, isn't that the whole point? Like, don't, don't we want to see transformation in our lives, the fruit of the Spirit visible, so that others might taste and see that God is good? So that we would be asked, how are you so peaceful? It's your eyes. How are you so peaceful? How are you so loving, joyful, patient, kind? To end this message, I'd like to show you a clip from a TV show called The Chosen. It's a free show. It's available on a free app that you can download to your smartphone. And I think it's on YouTube too. It's a show about the life of Jesus, like a, like a dramatic retelling, not like a commentary or a documentary. But 
it's really excellent. The first episode focuses largely on Peter and on Mary of Magdala, who suffers from fits of demonic possession. Mary, calling herself Lilith, is visited by a Pharisee who attempts to cast the demon out of her and fails. Later, he hears that she has been healed, and though he doesn't realize it was Jesus. Well, let's watch. Here's Nicodemus meeting with Mary. It's you. It's real. Lilith. No, no, please, don't be frightened. My name is Nicodemus. I, I ministered to you, Lilith. I don't answer to that name. I am Mary. I was born Mary. But you were called Lilith, yes? Please, I must go. No, no, please, Mary. I, I am desperate for your help, Mary. I'm a, I'm a Pharisee. I'm visiting from Jerusalem. I'm a man of God. And I believe you have experienced a miracle, Mary. Are you really a Pharisee? Yes. I'm sorry, I wasn't... I'm not here to enforce Jewish law. So how do you know who I am? You really don't remember me at all. I burned incense? I don't remember. It's all a blur. I can't go back into that. No, no, I don't want you to. I can't even imagine. But you you are healed. That, that much is clear. I just want to understand how it happened. That makes two of us. <laughs> how long after my visit did you feel the change? It wasn't anything you did. It was someone else. Someone else? He called me Mary. He said, I am his. I am redeemed. And it was so. Who did this? I don't know his name. And even if I did, I could not tell you. Why not? His time for men to know has not yet come. For me. <laughs> he performs miracles and seeks no credit? What does he look like? Is he a member of Sanhedrin? Would you at least know him if you saw him again? <laughs> I don't know why I am sharing this with you. I, I don't understand it myself. But here is what I can tell you. I was one way. Now I am completely different. And the thing that happened in between was him. So yes, I will know him for the rest of my life. <laughs> I was one way, and now I am completely different. And the thing that happened in between was him. He said, I am redeemed. And it was so. The power of God at work in a life. Again, the show is called The Chosen, and I highly recommend it. 
to finish us off, Jesus gave us a practice, an act to engage in to help us remember his power and presence in our lives. We know it as the Lord's Supper, and today, use the touch of the elements, the taste of them in your mouth, to ground your memory on the presence of God and of what he can do in your life. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you drink, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink. Amen. Have a great week.